Good morning. Welcome to another episode of Wither the Luniversity, the podcast of the Peerless Review. I am thrilled today to have as my guest Professor Amy Wax, Robert Mundheim, Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania, medical doctor, uh, lawyer, uh, reliable fighter of the, the wars that we're fighting in higher education. Professor Wax, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. But the first question I ask of everybody who appears on the show is to tell us, um, you have an interesting career arc. You started out in medicine, you transitioned to law in the past uh, few decades, you've been in the academic world. How did you make those early decisions about where and what you wanted to do? Well, I decided to go to medical school. I was very young, obviously, in my early 20s, and I think I didn't really think through the decision because I'm not sure I know, but I'm not temperamentally suited to that pursuit. Um, so I got the idea and my uh, boyfriend, now husband of many years, uh, said, you know, you really should think about law because that's the way your mind works. So I enrolled in Harvard Law School uh, and uh, I, I left to finish my medical training, but I was determined to come back and I came back to Columbia Law School. I graduated. I, I really love law school, unlike many people who don't, uh, and wonder why they want to be a lawyer. But I never wondered that. Uh, I did a clerkship on the DC Circuit. And then I went to the Justice Department under Reagan and Bush and worked in the Solicitor General's office, which is the best job any lawyer can have, looking at all the appellate cases that the United States is involved with, including cases before the Supreme Court of the United States. Back when I was there, which was the 80s, most people stayed five to 10 years and then left. Um, some people have stayed longer, but it was always in the back of my mind to be a law professor. I really enjoy exploring topics that are especially interesting to me. I enjoy teaching. Um, I just wanted a more developed approach to law that was uh, consonant with my interest. So I uh, started teaching at University of Virginia. Luckily, my husband also, who's an oncologist, was there uh, in the med school. Um, and then we came to Philly because of some opportunities that were there at Fox Chase Cancer Center and also Penn made me an offer. So I've been at Penn for 21 years and I've never looked back or regretted anything I've done or any change I've made. It's really not terribly useful, I think, to, to ruminate over the past. I think my life has turned out well. I have a lovely family. I have three 20 to 30 something children. I now have two grandchildren. So uh, I'm, I'm happy with the direction that I've taken. And until recently when you know, school and universities, I think, just went crazy in my mind. Um, it's been really fun to be a law professor, to publish and to teach. Now, it's not that much fun. And I'm the only, not the only person who thinks that. I, you know, I have colleagues who, behind closed doors and in private, tell me this, they're afraid of the students, the students can't take a joke, it's not fun teaching because you're always worried some student will you know, call you out for X, Y, or Z, and that's the atmosphere of the inmates being in charge of the asylum at law schools and more broadly. I'm sure this sounds very familiar to you. 
But I yeah. am now 70 and, you know, I hope to teach for uh, many more years, few more years, but we'll see because my institution has char brought charges against me based on my speech entirely, of course. Yep. And this has been the focus of your work lately, um, fighting for your career and and talking about uh, ideas about how can higher education in the in the true sense persist. You came to a lot of people's attention through your speech um, in an op ed in 2017. You said that the nation is paying the price for the breakdown of the country's bourgeois culture. Later, talking with Glenn Lowry, you made uh, the simple observation that black students generally in law school did not finish in the top half of their class. And it seems to me that after these comments, um, the the culture warriors on campus thought that they had their claws in you. Um, and since then, it's been a, a, a fight um, going forward. I wonder, you mentioned faculty's fear of the students. But there's really a few players here. There's the administration, there's the faculty, there's the students, and then there's the media. And I wonder which ones of those you think are are at the, the tip of the spear in terms of the revolution that's happening on campuses across the country. Is it is it admin? Is it really from the bottom up, from the students up, or is it top down or some mixture? I think it's some mixture. I would... Uh identify the worst culprits as, you know, the leadership of universities. And here I'm talking about university presidents and uh, provosts and those types of people. And, you know, I don't know what goes on in their mind. I do know that they have given in, they have capitulated to the worst sort of mindless, you know, a hectoring by a relatively small group of activist students who also threaten their fellow students. And these people are, you know, very vocal. They take to media and the, you know, rapid spread of allegations and information on the media certainly makes it worse, no question about it. And then, of course, as part of the corruption of higher ed, uh, we see these massive diversity, equity, and inclusion bureaucracies, which every school has now, and the elevation of this idea of diversity and inclusion as the highest good of the university. You look at any university newsletter, uh, any university alumni magazine, anything that comes out of the university, you know, for the alumni and the public, and it is diversity, 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 equity, inclusion, nonstop, and you know, portraits of discussions of individuals who are part of minority groups, who are individuals of color, and rarely uh, celebrating and touting, not never, but less often celebrating and touting white people. I mean, let's be frank, right? <laughs> oh, and, and Asians, although Asians kind of are a shifting sand in terms of whether they're an oppressed minority or white adjacent, I can never keep up with it. Um, but I think there's two problems. There are many problems with this glorification of diversity. First of all, it means that the university is really highly tendentious in its ideas and ideology. They don't seem to understand that there are tens of millions of people out there who don't give a hoot about diversity. <laughs> they 
you know, they might welcome if it, it happens spontaneously according to rules that they do endorse, like the meritocracy, right, or colorblindness. But if they were to list like their top 10 priorities for a school, a neighborhood, certainly, because white flight is alive and well, as you know, and people who can live in these white topias while lecturing the rest of us about diversity, of course. Right. Um, their workplace, they have other priorities. I'm one of those people, right? I wouldn't list diversity in the top 10 of what I want in a neighborhood. I would have, you know, I would say safety, friendliness, neatness, um, you know, friendliness, uh, civic civility, culture, civility, yeah. right? I mean, I could make a list, um, beauty, nature, etc. cetera. Uh, so the university has kind of walled itself off from the reality of social life. The second thing it's doing that I think is extremely dangerous is it is threatening the meritocracy. People don't want to admit that when you mandate diversity and equity, well, equity means all groups have the same outcomes, okay? Then that cannot be done consistent with a single standard meritocracy. And why is that? For the deep, dark reason that no one wants to talk about, which is currently different groups perform not equally well on you know the priorities that universities ought to have which is to teach people hard things and prepare them to run a highly complex technological society and this is like the last taboo this is a third rail um we have double standards all over the place and people deny that they are double standards and i'll just give you one example that just came across my desk which is so typical the American Board of Internal Medicine, which is a sophisticated organization that licenses and gives exams to people who want to become board ready doctors in internal medicine. It's a very difficult, long exam traditionally. Now has this diversity initiative where they are going to go through all the exams they administer and get rid of the questions that do not give equal outcomes for groups on the theory that these questions don't recognize the latent equality of all groups. Now, that is an Orwellian <laughs> phrase, if you ever would have one. Like, I guess I would ask, do the patients who are treated by these doctors give a hoot about latent ability? <laughs> like a latent schmatent. Right. Do you know your stuff? Are you a good doctor? Have you mastered this complex material? And of course, the notion that latent ability is is the same across the board is pure ideology it's just pure religious dogma okay and so you have this venerable organization that is the gatekeeper for most physicians buying into this stuff well we ought to be alarmed I think what they're going to find is that uh, there's I think they're in the stage now where they feel like if they can put thumbs on every scale, we can achieve the the equitable world they want. I think what they're going to find is they can put as many thumbs on the scale as they want and they're not going to achieve equal outcomes um, right. because nature is going to win. 
Um, yeah, and the, the, the chickens are going to come home. The question is, at what stage will they come home, right? Um, there's double standards all over the place. They have this magic dirt concept, which is, well, there's all this latent ability, diamonds in the rough. We have affirmative action to get them into this and that. And once they get there, they will do brilliantly, right? They didn't do brilliantly on the MCAT, not on the SAT. You know, people. someone once asked me, what do you think it means when people do poorly on the SAT or the MCAT? I said, it means they don't know the answers to the questions. <laughs> what else? I mean, is there some fraught significance to this? Right. Here that, the, that the test doesn't really measure anything meaningful, which is a falsehood. Of course it does. Is it the end all be all? No, but it gives you a lot of information. Yeah, so the chickens do come home to roost, maybe in law firms, maybe when you know someone's taking an advanced board exam. Um, I anonymously had a person, a, a physician, academic physician, tell me that in his department, the one black fellow in the specialty group flunked his board exams, flunked it four times. And you know the whole department has to massively, uh, you know, mobilize to <laughs> make sure he passes the next time. And it always reminds me of what Frederick Douglass said. He said, "People ask, what should we do with the black man?" And he said, "Nothing. Do nothing. Please do nothing and let us fail or succeed on our own steam and leave us alone." Well. Yep. That's, They're not uh, going to leave this doctor alone until they push him through the meat grinder somehow. But think about the patients, you know, who are going to have him as a doctor. It just makes no sense. People have to be allowed to fail on their own level and according to single standards. And that is what I'm fighting for. And that is what a lot of people who reject woke are fighting for. So you talked a little bit about DEI, and, and I want to ask you about the DEI industrial complex on campus. I wonder, I think that some people are of the mind that what's really driving DEI is legal concerns, that there's concerns about liability, that there's been um, expanded notions of liability in terms of Title IX, in terms of all these other things. And then there's the other camp who says, that the legal justification is really a fig leaf and mm -hmm. that and that the um, administration and that uh, woke bureaucrats um, want this kind of reign of terror on campuses uh, so that they can enforce um, their diktats as, as far as speech is concerned, curriculum is concerned, these kinds of other things. What do you think is driving it? Is it, is it a truly legal interest or is it an ideological? Well, I think the answer is both. The answer okay. has to be both because it is undeniably true that there are mandates emanating from Washington, you know, not just statutes because Congress barely does anything at this point, but uh, from the executive branch through these letters and guidances and other kind of under the table administrative view cases, right? And then we have the Department of Education and all of the true believers in the Department of Education. And, you know, they're all ensconced there. They're vigilantly watching over universities under Title IX. I mean, I just read a piece in First Things, which is a Catholic magazine, 
that made a case that Title IX should be repealed entirely, and I'm 100% behind that. Great um, article. But, but, you know, Title IX is a big chunk of it, and that just propagates, you know, more and more bureaucracy. Now, there is an element in DEI now of these people with fancy titles who are parked there. Many of them are minorities, I have to admit, and who knows what they do. They are a source of extreme mischief because they don't have enough to do. I, it's not clear what their mandate is. They're launching these programs and these trainings, and then they're a place that students can go to complain. So they love complaints, even the most trivial kinds. You know, one of the complaints against me is at least 12, 14 years old, because the student who graduated in 2010, that at some reception somewhere, I said to her, well, you're an affirmative action. Admit, you're a double ivy. Now, I would never put it that way to a student and never have. So the allegation is false, but we'll leave that aside. Okay. We have, you know, this isolated complaint from over a decade ago and the encouragement of this person and other people to come forward and remember right. these statements, right? I mean, they're desperate, desperately looking for stuff so that they can be engaged in enforcing an atmosphere of diversity, equity, inclusion. Now, what it boils down to for these people in many places is weaponizing feelings. Student, they encourage student feelings of grievance and you know trauma and attack, and then they whip them up into a frenzy. Um, I would like to be you know a little eye spy in these DIE offices. I see a lot of people dressed in business clothes, drinking coffee and meeting and blathering. They, as far as I'm concerned, they contribute nothing constructive to the university. Everything they contribute is destructive. Yes. And I, I think it's uh, an example of what Nietzsche called uh, resentment playing out on a on a large uh, on a large scale um, it's a it's a mechanism to prosecute the revenge fantasies on on society um, I and get rid of people like me who are cuckoos in the nest the irony of course is that if you read the New York Times which you know requires you to suspend all <laughs> disbelief you see them accusing the right the far right of resentment of grievance you know, notions of victimology. And this is like so rich. Uh, it, it, it is exactly the opposite. They're the masters. They're the champions of this kind of thinking. The right? iron law of woke projection. Um, Absolutely. It's like the parallax celebration of Michael Anton, right? Yes. Accusations of, of uh, grievance and victimology it's okay if it comes from the left, if it comes from the right, we're starting a culture war. That's right. right? We're responsible for the culture war. Yeah, standing up and objecting to this stuff is called a culture war. Why not? So I'm sure that you recall Alan Bloom's book, The Closing of the American Mind. And in that book, he kind of traced the uh, revolution in the universities to the influx of European uh, post-structuralist intellectuals in, in the aftermath of the Second World War. 
But that revolution was mostly complete by the 80s, late 80s, when Bloom was writing. It seemed like we, I entered the university as a student in 1996, and it seemed like at that point it was a left institution, but it was kind of, you know, like it, it wasn't the fevered pitch of ideological conformity that it is now. I think that that process kicked off anew maybe 10 or 15 years ago, and it's just continued to amplify. So what do you think drove that? There was this kind of detente in the 90s, and then right about 2000 or maybe 2005, 2006, we sort of went up on the uh, ideological strain of the mm-hmm. institution. What do you think was the driver of that second, um, you know, I guess well, I've asked a lot, like, you know, why is this happening? And, you know, people have different views of the timing. Yes, it's been going on gradually for quite a while, but, you know, as Hemingway would say, gradually and then all at once. Right. I think there was absolutely an acceleration uh, starting around 2015, different people give it a different date into this woke obsessiveness and censoriousness and this narrow Overton window, it's straitjacket that you're in, in all of these universities where, you know, the real life of the mind is going on elsewhere. It's going on in blogs and in, you know, sub stacks and really interesting people who are no holds barred. Uh, in the podcasts, I've done many podcasts with very thoughtful people. And that doesn't mean there isn't any disagreement, but there's a frank discussion of the issue. So, what do I think is going on? I actually think there are two things that have really accelerated the trend, and I'm just speculating here. The first is the feminization of the university. More and more women as students, as graduate students, as uh, professors in the administration, right? And there is very good data now, you know, from the Center for Partisanship and Ideology and other places, including the Pew Charitable Trust surveys, that show that women have very different priorities on average than men. In the academy, men have the traditional interest in, you know, open debate, truth-telling, empiricism, the creation of new knowledge, you know, what the university traditionally is for, and I'm all for. Women want, you know, everybody to feel good. It's like, if the baby's crying, pick it up. It's the (laughs) values of the nursery and the kindergarten. Honestly, you know, even women with very top flight education and credentials are obsessed with this stuff. And the two sets of values are in conflict. They are in conflict, right? So you can't have it both ways. But the women insist that this is the top priority. That's where you get diversity, inclusion, and equity. That's where you get all of this dumping on the meritocracy. It's white supremacy. It's white privilege. It's whiteness. All of that stuff. They use the racial language to advance their pet priorities. The second reason, I think, and it's one that people do not want to talk about, is that As time goes by after the Civil Rights Act, it becomes more and more obvious that blacks lag behind academically in skills and cognitive ability. Those numbers haven't changed. Okay, and there was this this confidence that AA would solve that problem, society, you know, passing civil rights laws would solve that problem, you know, blacks would catch up, and they haven't caught up. And if you look at the data, 
it's pretty stark. You know, I follow the psychometric data on cognitive ability and IQ and the genetics of that, that, you know, is more and more banished from the university. But because the bell curves are non-overlapping for, you know, blacks, whites, Asians, there are almost no blacks with IQs above 135, 40. They're very, very few, much smaller than their proportion of the population. Well, unfortunately, the people who are driving forward our knowledge and technology in our very sophisticated society, they are disproportionately people with high intelligence. That is just a fact, right? It doesn't mean other people can't play roles, but it's very hard to, you know, it's hard to be a Harvard math professor if you don't have two standard deviations out IQ. I'll just put that on the table. Okay, now you can pretend that someone who's further down on the bell curve can keep up with the people who make it to the top, but they can't really keep up. So we now have this web of deception, double talk, delusion. You can read article after article after article about diversity and why there isn't more diversity and never mentions this, let alone the high crime rates among black people, which are still much higher, and the family breakdown among black people. I mean, you put these three trends together and how can you expect groups to have equal outcomes, especially at the right tail of the bell curve? So what is this relationship of that to wokeness? Well, I think people are just frustrated and, you know, uh, discomfited by the fact that it's not happening the way they want it to happen and they predicted it would happen. And so they have to create an ideology that just by fiat says, we are gonna make people equal. We're gonna have black oncologists. We're gonna have, you know, black physicists. We're gonna have black professors of computer science. We just are going to, by hook or by crook, by force majeure, and you can't say a word against it, shut up. If you point out that this is threatening to our society's long-term interests, to the meritocracy, et cetera, you will be drummed out of town. Um, so it imposes this orthodoxy. And at the heart of it, I'm sorry to say, is race. Mm -hmm. it, it, is, it is black Americans and their fate in our society and the refusal to accept that, you know, so far we have not solved the problem of true equality. We have not. So... At the beginning, you talked a little bit about um, colleagues who come to you behind closed doors to express support for you. Um, we I've had this kind of week. Um, the uh, new faculty that we've hired who refer to themselves as the new diverse faculty um, have issued more or less a slate of needs, capital N-E-E-D-S, um, that they need interventions that they need in order to be successful. And in a department meeting this week, I said, I just don't understand why they need accommodations that other faculty have never had in, in getting tenure. Um, and uh, I did from one of my colleagues, who's a woman, get an email about how horrified she was by my impoliteness um, in, in saying this. Um, and then a number of colleagues did come to me behind closed doors and say, I agree with you, but I can't say it. They'll call me a racist. Um, 
two questions for you. One, we're not going to win this until the people who agree with us, who are too afraid to speak, stop coming to us behind closed doors and start saying this stuff in open meetings, right? So number one, how do we get them to do that? Number two, and you are a pro at this. This is one of the reasons why I've admired you so much over the time is you just don't give a shit, right? Like if they, if they hate you, if they, uh, at least from the outside, that's how it seems, right? And that requires some thick, thick skin because I think that everybody's nature is you want to be liked by your colleagues. You want to be liked by people. So A, how do we get the the people who agree with us, but who are in the closet, so to speak, to come out of the closet. Two, how do we deal with the opprobrium that will be heaped on for stating these heretical truths? Well, let's start at the end. I mean, it's not true that I don't care. I, I care on some level, but I am convinced that this is an important fight. I said at this Stanford Free Speech Conference I attended a few months ago, um, I remember the motto of my children's prep school, non-sibi, not for ourselves. We are not doing this for ourselves. We are doing it to preserve a glorious tradition and institution that have been built by those before us, often by great effort and sacrifice and faith, and do it for those coming after who deserve to inherit those institutions uh, in their best form. So. You know, I do it out of conviction. Do I like people shunning me and hating me and the sorts of things that are written about me? No, I don't like them, but I understand that it goes with the territory. Now, the problem of people grumbling behind closed doors but being uh, afraid to stand up, I have no easy answer for that. Uh, I especially fault tenured professors, you know, the old white guys, I call them, and gals. Uh, <laughs> but other people too, you know. Um, they, you know, they are in a position to do it and it's collective action problem. They really need to get together and, you know, speak openly to their own administrators, their own deans, their own university presidents. This shall not stand. This is undermining us as an institution. Now we do have organizations like the Academic Freedom Alliance and they issue letters, very eloquent letters, but you know, as Stalin said about the Pope, how many divisions do they have? <laughs> what kind of power do they have? Why should Penn care what the AFA says? Why should they care about this stuff in the first place? They have students applying in record numbers. They have you know, these hoodwinked alumni or indifferent alumni who are just addled and confused about issues like academic freedom pouring money into these institutions. Um, and we have the added detriment of young people coming out of these universities now, people who are in their 20s and 30s and beyond, who literally have not been taught and inculcated, I'm gonna call it inculcated, with the importance of free discourse, free speech, uh, dealing with people who radically disagree with you, right? They're, they know nothing about that. They're taught the very opposite. You know, fire them, uh, get rid of them, make them suffer, shut them up. They're taught that. So that is a real impediment. Um, I am not sure how to get people motivated. I've tried, other people have tried. 
you know, people have this comfy life and they have, you know, these normie wives, people, that's not a nice thing to say, but it's accurate. <laughs> uh, they, they don't want to rock the boat. And of course, the ultimate weapon is to call someone a racist. Right. I, and I've been called a racist so many times. I just lost count. All right. It does lose its sting because the word is a bullshit word. Yes. Right. It's a bullshit word that the left trots out under the guise that it's a description of something definite, which it isn't. But in fact, it's evaluative and it's meant to condemn. So the left has this whole roster of vocabulary that fits those characteristics. And you just have to call it out. You know, I mean, noticing group differences, noting, noticing pathologies in the black community that hold them back, doing anything like that, right? Um, noticing, you know, how sedulous Asians are and how much attention they pay to academics. You know, this is all just, uh, you can label all of that racism if you want, right? I mean, that there's, nobody calls them on it. What the academic administration should be doing, the deans, the professors, the provost, is take correction correcting gently or otherwise students when they go astray intellectually. And they're going astray all over the place. I mean, there's no effort to get them to think more clearly, get them to define their terms. Um, any of the stuff that used to be the staple of intellectual life. I'll just tell one anecdote that illustrates this. A number of years ago now, I gave a talk at the University of Chicago to the FEDSOC, the Student Federal Society chapter. At the end of my talk, this corn-fed lovely young lady in the back, a uh, Midwesterner, says to me, well, isn't everything you're saying just a manifestation of white supremacy? I said, well, before I answer that question, you're going to have to define white supremacy. Please define white supremacy. This was at a law school. Silence. I, I got nothing out of her. I said, let me give you a piece of advice, right? Because I've practiced law for eight years at the highest level, and I'm a law professor. Never use a term you can't define. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, I've been told well, I'm in an told English department. told me about department. that for years after. He said, I was there in the audience when you said that, and we just loved it. We. I I work in an English department, and um, I've been told that uh, grading grammar is white supremacy. I've been trying to get my colleagues to define social justice for a good three years ago, or three years now. None of them have taken a crack at it yet. Um, I have one I last that question. that phrase, social justice. Oh. It, is, it is a, an abuse yeah. of the traditional notion of justice, which is, you know, kind of the very opposite which is just desserts that yeah. looks at well, it's, it's also like, who doesn't want a just society? Every single well, person in America I, wants I, a just society, right? Equal justice under law. That is what it says over the Supreme Court uh, building. But that idea has morphed into something really sinister and destructive. Uh, and it will tell. I don't know. People ask me to predict the future, and I never want to do that. Um, but what's going on in the university now is a wholesale assault 
on fairness and justice in the name of special people who get special privileges and special dispensation. Uh, and the number of lies and falsehoods that you have to tell, the number, the, the stuff you can't notice in order to push that through just keeps expanding and expanding. Well, I know you have a busy day today. I have one last question for you. Um, let's let's say that um, we have a bright 20-year-old, um, someone who's very academically inclined, um, someone who also has heterodox ideas, who's considering a career in academia, right? And at this point, they're looking at the state of, of all the disciplines, really, and saying, geez, do, should I even bother? Um, what advice would you have for these people who are certainly scattered throughout the nation today and who are looking at what's unfolding and are thinking maybe the university just isn't a, a good place for them anymore? Yeah, no, I think this is a very, very tough question because the left has the university in its grip. It is trying to consolidate its control and uh, it is, you know, not going to let up. It is not going to let up. Okay. And now we have all sorts of barriers and requirements to even be hired like diversity and inclusion statements. So, you know, people do like that do come to me for advice. And I say, look, you know, you can try to get into the university. You can sort of try to beat the system and outfox the system. But I think when you get there, if you're going to do anything that's remotely a hot button issue and, you know, practically everything is except the most technical stuff and even that um you know even engineers can't escape this uh you'll have to keep your head down for quite a while in order to get into a position where you can at least exert some leverage or do the sorts of things you want to do and it requires a very special person to stay the course on that it's very difficult uh i'm not saying it can't be done there are some fields that are better than others. Um, economics, I think, hasn't quite gone wholesale woke, but it's moving in that direction because it's getting feminized, right? The hard sciences, math, they're a little bit of a bastion. It's really hard to know what's going on nationwide and you know which universities are safer than others. It's, it's a tough, tough business. I also advise students who go out into big law or, you know, into medical fields. Big law has gone mega woke over the past four or five years. And I know partners and firms that are, you know, had been in the Trump administration. We're talking about firms that traditionally have, have a lot of Republicans say, well, now we have to go to this committee this management committee and it's full of wokeistas or people who are afraid of this young students coming into the firm and of course they all want the best and the brightest and those people are often uh quite ideological especially the women and they also have to truckle to woke inc their clients right who have all of these woke priorities of diversity and staffing and they want to see a law firm that shares their values blah 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 and you know a young person who's a doubter and a skeptic has to go work in that environment try and make partner try and succeed well the easiest way is to keep your mouth shut right 
Uh, you can't even I, do that anymore. Now they make you speak the catechism. Right. Silence is violence, right? right. Silence is violence, which is a, just a key totalitarian trope, you know. I mean, I consider myself very lucky because even though Penn is just making my life, you know, miserable at, at, to the extent they can by bringing formal charges against me, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm, you know, 70. I don't have to worry about financial uh, matters. A lot of these young people have loans. They're starting families. Uh, it's a very precarious situation. So I'm not, I'm not really asking anyone to stick their neck out, right? The people who should stick their neck out are the people with protection and they're not doing it. And I fault them. Uh, so I guess, you know, you have to kind of muddle through. But I do say to people, you may not, you know, believe in the culture war, but the culture war believes in you. And sooner or later, they will come for you and you will have to make a decision uh, about whether you're going to go along with this nonsense, um, pure dogma, pure ideology, uh, which is really bad for our country, um, or do something about it. Let me just say one more thing, if we have the time. Um, people ask me a lot about, you know, how do we get rid of or temper critical race theory and other stuff that's being peddled in the university and also in K through 12, where it really doesn't belong at all. And my having thought about it and uh, responding to people, I realized that it's very hard to extirpate one view, which is that we have an irredeemably racist society that's front and center. We harp on that and all of the evidence for that. It's hard to banish that. But what we can do, and what I think politicians should do, like DeSantis, is introduce very aggressively balance into the discussion. You know, if you're in academia today and you say, I wanna teach or I wanna teach a course that celebrates European culture and all of its achievements, basically the achievements of white people, let's be clear, right? Um, which are responsible for, you know, not, let's be generous, 95% of modernity across the board in, you know, government, administration, science, public health, transportation, um, the list goes on and on and on. You know, government, rights, law, they've done space it Space exploration. Yeah. What? Space and, exploration, and, everything. Yeah, space exploration. Um, exploration not just of, of places, but of ideas. Uh, if you want to show young people what a glorious tradition they're carrying on and using a book like Charles Murray's Human Accomplishment, which gets no attention and is a wonderful book, well, that's because it's so, so lopsided, uh, and tout it to the extent that it deserves, right, which is a lot of attention, uh, you can't do that. That's considered an affront. That's considered racist. That's considered white supremacy, white nationalism, whatever label they're going to slap on it. And so as a result, nobody does that. Glenn Lowry, who I adore, of course, once said, well, that's so chauvinistic. I said, Glenn, look up the word chauvinism. It's excessive pride, <laughs> right? What's the baseline here? 
<laughs> I don't think that if you, you know, glorify the virtues and achievements of the West, of Europe, yeah, white people, that that's chauvinism. That's just the truth, what actually happened, right? And okay, we could spend all day and all month and decades trying to explain it. You know, the left has explanation, oh, colonialism and all sorts of nefarious thought forces emanating from Europe, you know, suppressed everybody else. Well, that's just one hypothesis, folks. There are <laughs> others. Uh, so all of that's been banished from the university. Uh, and there are debate. these debates do take place elsewhere, but and been banished from K through 12 as well, right? So students know nothing about British history, nothing about the Anglo-British legacy, the Anglo-American ideas that have made their way, nothing, zero. I mean, it's like a blank slate, you know, about the glories of Victorian England, about, you know, the Anglosphere and its achievements. It's um, a really shocking presentism. Like, they don't even know the last 20 years of American history. Well, right. I they mean, don't it's... They know the 20th century. Right. They don't know they five minutes. Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King. And even Martin Luther King's under his shadow because he's not woken up. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the ignorance is vast. And let me just say, I am going to have to go, but this... Uh, is relevant to the question of teaching sexual and gender matters in the school. You know, my view is there should be zero sex education in the school, zero. These topics should never be addressed. And there are two reasons. Well, three reasons. First of all, that's the way I was educated and brought up. Um, and it seemed to work fine. You had children, um, right? You figured it out. Yeah, and so, well, you figured it out <laughs> at an age-appropriate level. Right. And the second point is, it ought to be figured out through private forces and functions, parents, civic organizations, religious organizations. It is not the government through the school's responsibility to teach people about these things because it's always infused with moral significance and purpose. And that is the bailiwick of parents. Parents want authority in this area. That is why they are rebelling okay against that but the third reason is there are so many other things that students need to know the time and energy is being taken up by these weird contemporary debates about queerness and transgenderism and sexuality and sexual identity no we need that mental space we need that time in the school to teach them about in a very deep way our form of government, what is republicanism, where does it come from, what motivated the founders, right? How do commercial societies work? Work. Teach them, let's say, some economics, teach them the appreciation for everything around them, which was invented almost entirely by Europeans, European males, hey, I'm sorry, you know, but that's a fact. Um, all that stuff gets banished in favor of do you feel like you're a little boy or a little girl? <laughs> no. How do you feel? Anyway, that's all well, I have to say. <laughs> Professor Wax, you have been a breath of fresh air to me this morning, and I think uh, you you speak for um, many, many frustrated academics across the country. I, 
I wish you um, God's grace in your fight against Penn. And thank you for all the work that you do. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a blast. Bye-bye.